Great. Good morning. We're going to be reading today from Matthew, uh, from Matthew, from Mark 10. It's a good start, isn't it? Um, and if you, so if you've got your Bibles, it's worth opening to that. I was just struck this morning as we were worshipping. You know, there's a couple of pictures among many that um, Scripture uses of itself, of God's words to us. One of them is bread, daily bread, the reading of the Scriptures daily. It does us good. It builds us up. It gives us what we need for that day. And it's, do, it's good to do. And, and another one is that it's a light to us. You know, your word is a light to my path, a lamp to my feet. And the word brings revelation in a way that changes how we see the world and therefore how we act and what we do. And my heart this morning is that as we hear uh, God's word again, that the change that God has been wanting to bring about in our lives, in particular over this series that we've been on, The Call to Follow, which I've been following on the podcast. It's been doing me good, really, really good stuff that we've been hearing. My prayer is that, it, that the word changes our mindset, our heart, our outlook on life in a way that affects how we will live and how we'll approach God. And it's no coincidence that we've gone through a whole series on this and that this passage reminds us we need to hear messages more than once sometimes. So this is Mark 10, 32 to 45, and it starts with Jesus repeating a message that he's already given twice in predicting his death. We were reminded just a few weeks ago that the disciples just didn't get it the first time he told them, or even the second time he told them, they would take him aside and say, no, Jesus, this isn't right. This isn't what's going to happen. And he had to rebuke them because they didn't get it. So he says it again. So this is from verse 32. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, but you do have a phone, just putting um, Mark 10 NIV into Google will give you the scriptures that we're after, if that's of help to you. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
This is a lesson that they need to hear several times over, isn't it? Even, even after the third time that Jesus talks about how he was going to suffer and die, and he goes into a lot more detail this time. Previously, he said, you know, I'm going to be, uh, I'm, I'm going to suffer and die. And then he says, I'm going to be handed over to, you know, into the hands of men and I'll uh, die. And this time he says, you know, I'm going to be tried by the Jewish leaders and then handed over to the Gentiles and they'll flog me and spit on me. He goes into a good amount of detail about what's going to happen to him and then he'll rise again. And yet we know that it isn't sinking into people's hearts just yet, into his disciples' hearts. We know a couple of reasons. And one reason would be that after Jesus has risen from the dead, um, he encounters these two believers walking along the road to Emmaus. And they're talking about Jesus as though he's failed. They're saying, you know, we're, we're totally, totally bereft because we'd hoped he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. So they haven't really twigged what he said about the fact he's going to die and be raised from the dead. But another reason we know that they didn't get it is because the very next thing that happens is that James and John come up to him and go, yes, can we be with you in your glory? And they, they clearly still have this mindset, which actually is alluded to at the beginning. It said here, as Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, that um, his disciples were astonished or amazed, while those who followed were afraid. And there's the sense, there's this expectation building in the crowd, which shows they haven't quite understood quite what's going to happen. And of course, because of the way that um, people read the scriptures and the messianic promises at the time, what they confidently expected was that what Jesus was going to usher in was the kingdom of God on earth in which a, a king from the line of David would rule over Israel, defeat the enemies of Israel in battle, and then all nations would flock to Israel for the hope that they found in the living God. And that was what they expected Jesus to do. And so there's this combination of amazement at what he's doing and also fear because, you know, that's going to bring about conflict and what's going to happen. And, and in all of that, James and John are like, right, now's the time. We want to sit one side and the other side of him when he's on his throne in Jerusalem. We want to be with him in his glory. And it be, can be quite easy to look back and sort of look down on the disciples. I don't know if you ever find yourself doing that. Oh, they were, they were a bit simple, weren't they? But it's, it's really, really easy for us with hindsight, with it all laid out nicely in Scripture afterwards. But you can understand how they come to this conclusion. But the message that Jesus gives them is, is quite different. Because he says to them, glory isn't yours for the asking, actually. In the kingdom of God, glory is not ours for the asking. Suffering and service, on the other hand... They're ours for the asking. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. What's he referring to? He's referring to his own suffering, death, persecution at the hands of men. Um, James has a more intense and shorter experience of that. Not many years after Pentecost, he's put in prison and then executed. Whereas John's experience of it is a drawn-out one in which he lives under persecution for decades um, and eventually finishes his life in exile on the island of Patmos. And so both of them do, in one sense, drink the cup that Jesus drank and experience the baptism that he experienced. They came to him asking for glory, and what he offered them was suffering and service. Perhaps you think that's not a very good trade. Um, I don't know if you think maybe Jesus did a number on them. You know, they came to him and said, you know, give us these positions of honor. And he says, oh, can, can you go through what I'm going to go through? And they go, yes, 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 okay, okay, you will. I don't think that's quite what's going on. 
Not least because I don't think that's in Jesus' character. Uh, I think what's going on is he's giving them an opportunity to realize what they're asking for. They may not understand it at the time, but he gives them an opportunity to realize that in asking for glory, what they're asking is to participate with him in his suffering and in his service. And what happens then is really glorious because God changes their hearts. At this point in time, I think we can be pretty clear. They're sort of, you know, these rough and ready guys who Jesus calls them sons of thunder. They're always, you know, putting their foot in it and doing big crazy stuff and missing out on God's attitude towards people. You know, those people wouldn't accept you. Let's call fire down in their village, God. And, you know, that's, that's their heart at this point in time. And yet by Acts 5, what we see is something quite different. If the clicker works. If it doesn't, you'll just have to advance it yourself. Oh, there we go. Brilliant. So by Acts 5, the apostles have been arrested for preaching the good news of Jesus. And it says that the Sanhedrin tried them, and then they called the apostles in and had them flogged, and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Can you see that heart transformation that goes on in them from desiring the glory and the power and the prestige of being at Jesus' right and his left through to the point where they count themselves as honored if they get to suffer for Christ. God totally changes their hearts. This is the work of the Spirit in them. They don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get it. And then they're filled with the Spirit at Pentecost and something changes in them. And suddenly they have this different attitude. And what they start to realize, I think, is that suffering serves a purpose. Suffering glorifies God if done right. What do I mean by that? Well, um, let's start with Paul. Paul writes this to the church in Colossae. He says, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Scripture seems to suggest that even after Christ's suffering, which accomplished everything in terms of our salvation, it suggests that there is further building of the church that will happen through suffering and through service. And Paul says, I I gladly take that on because Christ continues to suffer in his body as the church is established on initially the blood of martyrs, Many, many people gave their lives in the, in the early period of the growth of the church, um, gave up their lives because they were witnessing to Christ. And on that, the church was built. And there is a continued suffering that goes on, on which the church is established and in which God is glorified. And Paul gets this and he says, so I gladly take on myself whatever's necessary in order to see the church blessed. It's not self-punishment. Um, For those of you who recognize the scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, we're not talking about people walking along beating themselves, which apparently still goes on in some parts of the world. There's a little village in the uh, southern tip of uh, Spain where people still walk through the villages uh, cutting themselves with stones and things like that. This is not some kind of strange ritual in which we think by physically inflicting pain on ourselves, we're going to free ourselves from sin um, or somehow you know, pay, pay a price, add to Jesus' sacrifice. That's not what we're talking about. But actually, suffering done right can bring glory to God. Um, three ways. First of all, it has a purifying effect. Peter talks about this. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. 
there's a purifying effect of suffering on us in which if we're prepared to go through suffering in a godly way, it affects our heart attitudes. It means that we're no longer just concerned with pleasing ourselves and fulfilling the needs of our body, but actually we're more concerned with what God wants for us. We're more concerned with obedience. It has that purifying effect on our hearts. There's also a testimony of suffering. This is what John sees in the book of Revelation. It says, the accuser of our brothers and sisters. This is at the end of a passage which has had the it's kind of the contest between the devil and the people of God. It says, The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They, the people of God, triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony because they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You may perhaps have read stories where this testimony has been critical in somebody coming to faith. They've seen someone who is not even afraid to die rather than renounce the name of Jesus. And because of that willingness to hold their lives lightly compared with God's glory, others have been drawn to faith. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. There's a testimony that comes with suffering, which says, God is more important than the physical needs of my body. God is more important than my happiness. God's kingdom is more important than my comfort. And then it also demonstrates love this classic verse that gets brought out in many different situations where Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. What a high calling that is. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. It was a testimony of many people in the ancient world writing about this odd sect of Judaism that had grown up. They, they said there's something about them. They love each other in a way that we have not seen anywhere else. They love each other. They lay down their lives for each other. These are all ways in which suffering can be for the glory of God. And the hope that we have in the gospel, and I, I hope you know this, is that suffering is not in vain. It's never forgotten. It's never sidelined. It's never lost to God. He sees it all. And we even believe that actually God has pre-planned a world in which as a result of sin, there will be suffering. And as a result of faithful obedience through suffering, God's kingdom will come. It's not lost. It's not without hope. It's not in vain. Now, perhaps you think I've um, gone a little bit far from Jesus's focus here, mainly on service. And I just want to go back to this because he says here that, you know, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Even the Son of Man did not come to serve, sorry, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a clear overlap in Jesus' teaching between suffering and service. He talks about these two levels. He talks, first of all, about service. And then he talks about being a slave, which is uh, it's a different word in the Greek. It indicates not just kind of service as a, you know, a contract, but actually something of that, giving over yourself totally to the will of another. And the example he gives is that he came to serve and also to give his life. There's an overlap between service and suffering. And I want to suggest to you that suffering embraced in a godly manner is service to Christ. 
and service undertaken in an ungodly manner will be suffering. I'll say that again. (laughs) Suffering embraced in a godly manner is service to Christ. What do I mean? Well, have you ever been in the situation of seeing somebody suffer and through it still give glory to God? An event that a number of us have referred to here from the front um, was after Mike Carter spoke to us when his wife Lynn had just suffered a stroke. And he stood up here and he said, you know, some people say to me, do you ever ask yourself, you know, why and where's God in all this? He said, I don't have time for stupid questions like that. God's with me in all of this. His, his heart, I, know, I haven't necessarily captured his words, but his heart came across of my hope is in the Lord and he's with me. I don't have to ask myself questions about, you know, why this, why that? God's with me in this. It comes with so much strength because of the suffering he'd been through. And the way that he, he suffered in a godly manner, and I, although I've seen less of it, the way Lynn has suffered in a godly manner in that, is a testimony to who God is and brings him glory. It's a service to the people of God. And I'm sure that it will also be having an effect on those around them who don't know Jesus Christ. And likewise, service undertaken in an ungodly manner is essentially suffering. And what do I mean by this? I mean, if, if you do something, but you do it under such duress that you do it with bad grace, the people you're doing it for probably still aren't blessed. And you're not blessed doing it. And it becomes a form of suffering, doesn't it? But not a very godly one. I don't know if you, if you have the experience of asking your kids to do something, perhaps. That's a, always a good way to learn these things, isn't it? And there's such a difference between somebody who says, yes, of course, I'll go do that, and goes and you know, empties the dishwasher, whatever it might be. Or the, oh, do I have to? Oh, I suppose. Can I do this first? And then they kind of drag themselves through it, one glass at a time. And you sort of think, the way you're holding it, I think you're going to drop something. And by the end of it, you're not blessed because you're like, you're going to break something. And frankly, you're making me feel down. And you're clearly sort of really resenting this. And so I feel like we're damaging relationship. There's just a huge difference between that and somebody who says, yes, I'm with your heart and soul. What can I do? How can I bless you? Um, so suffering embraced in a godly manner is service. Service undertaken in an ungodly way will be suffering. I want to suggest to you there's a call here to seek to serve Christ. He talks when he says, you know, those who want to be great must serve. Those who want to be first must become the slaves. He talks about it as though we have a choice about this. He's not just saying some people have been assigned positions of leadership and so they will have to serve. And some people have been assigned a slavehood and they will be first. He's talking about it as though we have a choice as to how we act. And he commends to us the choice to serve. He commends to us. He says, get low. Choose to lay your life down. Choose to take on yourself that lowest place. Choose to see how you can serve and bless others. Take whatever comes your way in terms of suffering and do it in a godly way. And as a result, God will be glorified. And do you know what? It's for your good as well. So in that, I want to circle back to James and John. I I said it's easy to look down on their sort of gung-ho, God, give us these places of glory at your right and your left. Maybe maybe in some ways they're a little bit misunderstood here because actually God does want us to desire to please him. They they kind of go to the the wrong end of it. They go for the glory and the outcome. But in the process, they take on themselves. They say, yeah, okay, we, we will go through what you go through. And... Maybe that's an attitude that we could do with learning from. 
And God changes their hearts. We looked at this. God will change our hearts too, from hearts that want to bask in the glory of Christ to hearts that want to increase Christ's glory. That is quite a difference, really. It's wonderful to, to want to be where God's doing amazing stuff and to want God to you know, do things around us in such a way that people go, oh yeah, that guy I thought was total loony because he believed in Jesus Christ. I see now it's all true and it's all right. And it, it's wonderful to want to bask in that glory. But actually, if our heart really is to see Jesus' glory increased, that might be one way, but it might be a totally different way. It might be through our suffering. It might be through us giving our lives faithfully in a fairly unseen way, day after day and week after week. And the disciples go through this slightly odd um, sort of process, don't they? Because on the one hand, Jesus is talking to them about suffering and service. And on the other hand, he gets the breakthrough. You know, he, he heals people and releases them from things. Their early experience of, you know, of church after Pentecost is that they pray and people are raised up from the dead, from being sick. People are released from prison, and yet they're also not. James and John are brothers, and John lives, and James is imprisoned and executed. Peter and James, they're both imprisoned. Peter's released by an angel. James isn't. So they have this interesting experience in which God is able to work miraculously and they have faith that he will and they lay their hands on people and see them raised up from sickness and they preach the gospel to people and they turn to Christ. And yet in all of that, there is also suffering and there is also service and there are beatings and arrests and pressure from the Sanhedrin and pressure from the Gentiles and shipwrecks and being bitten by snakes, if we go into Paul. that All of these things come along with a life of breakthrough and healing and in all of this, I want to suggest that what they need and what they get is God's perspective on things. Because God gets the plan. He knows when it's the right thing to do one thing and when it's the right thing to do another. And they get God's perspective. They've spent three years walking with Jesus. They've been filled with the Spirit. And off the back of that comes an understanding in which they say, We'll accept the suffering that comes. We'll accept the lowest place. And yet we'll also pray for the big things. And we'll also preach the gospel and see healing come. And that, that shift of perspective is a work of the Spirit in our hearts. I don't know if you've read Psalm 73. Um, God spoke to me a lot over the summer through that psalm. It's one which starts with David saying to God, God, I just don't get it. What's going on? Because the wicked people are prospering in the world. And righteous people seem to be under the thumb. And, you know, what's going on? And he says, and then, then I went into the house of the Lord. And he has this change of perspective. And he says, and I realize what, what the fate of these people are. God gives him a shift of perspective and his whole heart attitude changes. And it comes from being with God. I could have gone a few different ways with this passage. The reason I felt God was leading to talk about specifically suffering and its overlap with service is because God has given OCC as a church a place of leadership within the city to a degree. Um, a number of initiatives are spearheaded within the city um, by OCC, among others. He's given us a place of influence and authority in our sphere of churches. 
in particular with Steve and Bev leading in that sphere. He's given us um, a place in which we teach and gather people for conferences on health and social care. He's given us a place of influence and authority, and with that could be a temptation to pride, and with it could be a temptation to sort of almost boom or bust. We expect to see all the great things happening, and if we don't, maybe we miss the boat. And I want to say, no, there's a different way for OCC in which God has called you to a place of leadership and authority, but he's also called you to suffer and to serve, and those two are not incompatible. In fact, they are totally inseparable. And Paul experiences this, doesn't he? He says, I I prayed that God would take away this thorn in my flesh, this messenger of Satan. We don't know what it is exactly, but he he prays that God would take it away. And God says, no, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Exactly. My power is made perfect in weakness. I feel God wants to say to you, will you accept only the influence and authority? Or will you also accept the service and the suffering? And if your answer to that is, I want all of it, whatever God has for me, I want to get low. And we as a community want to get low and take whatever God has for us. Then I want to suggest there is an invaluable step of spending the time with the Lord enough that you get what he's doing and why he's doing it. Because otherwise with, these, um, with the suffering comes discouragement. But actually if we have God's perspective with suffering and with service comes faith and closer intimacy with God. I was reading um, the other day about the hymn. I always forget, get too confused. It is is, is well with my soul. The one where um, the chap who wrote it has just suffered the loss of most of his family in a a shipwreck, having already previously lost a son in a fire and most of his livelihood as well. And in all of that, he writes this hymn of gratitude. It is well with my soul. In the midst of tragedy, because of his intimacy with Christ, he finds praise and he finds faith. And in a way that has affected generations of Christians. I want to suggest to you, this is for us as well. There will be suffering and service to do. Embrace it with a godly attitude and seek to be close to God through it. And you will thrive in your faith, even as things are tough. And you will be built up in your expectation that God can also break through those situations. Because instead of seeing that as opposition that you cannot overcome, you see it as this is part of God's plan. But God is totally able to do that as well. There's no substitute for spending time in God's presence. And if there's one thing I can leave you with, um, it's this encouragement. Spend time with the Lord. Andy, uh, you were really struck after your visit to that monastery, weren't you? I, I can't remember if it was after the visit to the monastery or, or somebody you spoke to about it, but you, you said, it, you know, our quiet times, we put aside a, a quiet time for the Lord and then we get on and live the rest of our days. He said, what if we spent an hour of our day just listening to the Lord and then prayed for the rest of our day? And there was something about that that caught my heart. I don't know if it catches yours the same, but what if we could get really, really close to the Lord in praying to him about everything, but in listening and in intimacy with him so that we understand what's going on and we can walk through suffering with faith and we can testify to the glory and goodness of God through it. I feel I've covered this from a number of different angles. I wanted to leave you with, there we go, this in three bullet points, really. The first one is this, see it like God sees it. If we see things the way God sees them, they start to make sense much more. Some of you remember Yian Davies, 
and um, his children were in the church as well as, as him and Irene before they moved away. And when he was dying of pancreatic cancer, uh, he was a great encouragement to Caroline and I as we were going through Flo's diagnosis process. But I remember coming away from having spent some time with him and, and praying with him for healing. And he was full of faith for healing and the family were full of faith for healing. And I remember coming away thinking, he, he continues to deteriorate. God, what's going on here? And I felt God say to me, he's dying well. And that word sank into my heart and I thought, well, I'd love to keep praying for healing, but I, actually maybe in all of that praying for healing, I'm missing something beautiful that God is doing here, that he is dying in the hope of Christ. And he had a lot to entrust to Christ with the needs of that family. He had a lot to trust Christ with, but he died in the hope of Christ, full of faith, without grumbling and complaining, even though he was in considerable pain. He died in the Lord. And, you know, may I die a death as good as that. So see things the way God sees them, and that comes through intimacy. Serve the way God serves. Jesus being in very nature God. Steve, I, I came in at the end, I think, if you're reading this. Did you read that passage from Philippians 2? Being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, emptied himself, became obedient even to death on a cross. And love like God loves, because God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world through him. I want to encourage you, see like God sees, serve like God serves, and love like God loves. I think we're going to take some time to worship again now. I want to encourage you as we worship to call to mind places where you are currently serving or places where you're currently suffering and to turn those to God in worship. Because approaching those with a heart of thankfulness and gratitude and love to God transforms them from meaningless suffering into giving glory to him. I really believe that the suffering God allows us to go through can be an altar of worship. I want to encourage you to do that now as we worship.